church. Good to see you all. We all survived the big storm from Friday night. It was epic. Uh, just to the north of where I live, there's a golf course and the rain, it rained so hard, the lakes at the golf course uh, overflowed that flooded into my neighborhood. And so the next morning, there's, there's all these dead fish in the cul-de-sac. I'm like, God, this was biblical. <laughs> I'm like, I'm glad to see that rainbow, you know, it's like, you made a promise, you know, it was, it was pretty epic. So, hey, if you got your Bibles, we're in Genesis chapter 31, picking up where we left off last week. If you're new, welcome. My name's Jason. I'm one of the guys on staff here. Uh, great to have you with us right after the service. I'll be hanging out right down here in the front. Would love to meet you if you have a minute right afterwards. So we've been uh, looking at the life of this man, Jacob, for the last several weeks. And it's been interesting, right? Uh, his life is filled with drama, uh, dysfunction, and the guy, his life is like, it's incredibly relatable. Uh, he's the third generation recipient of specific promises that started with his grandfather, Abraham, the great patriarch, handed down to his father, Isaac, and then on to Jacob himself. And the essence of these promises are quite large. Basically, he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Later, his name gets changed to Israel. By the way, we've said that the Bible actually helps us understand some uh, uh, modern-day history. The Israelites come forth from this man. His name gets changed from Jacob to Israel because of this encounter with God. And he's also told that uh, one day he will have a descendant that will be a blessing to all families on the earth. And as the Bible continues to unfold, it's this really is sort of this love story from God to humanity. And we learn that Jesus is that descendant through whose, whose his death on the cross ends up being a blessing to every family, every person on earth. It's a crazy wild story. It's filled with ups and downs. For many years, Jacob has been living up to his name, which means deceiver. And he's been reaping what he sowed, just like the rest of us in life. The Bible is true, you reap what you sow. Many years earlier, he deceived his, his father into giving him the family blessing, took it away from his older brother Esau. When Esau finds out, he's out of his mind. He's mental with rage, and he wants to kill his brother. So this forces Jacob to leave. He travels far away. He meets his wife, the girl of his dreams. Plot twist. His father-in-law tricks him. The deceiver gets deceived. Jacob gets a taste of his own Medicine, But through this, God will use the pain, the suffering, the heartache. It's kind of like a mirror that gets held up in front of him. It's like, Jacob, this is actually you. What your father-in-law did to you is what you've been doing to other people your whole life. And this causes him to change. He gets confronted with the reality of who he is. There's this slow turning to God. It's not immediate, but it's slow. And eventually, God becomes his God. Formerly, he would say, well, that's the God of my father. But now he's using terms like, no, God is my God. I know him personally. He was raised in a home that had the fear of God in it. And he rejected it. You know, it's interesting because kids in Christian homes, you know, they must come to their own faith decision. Right? Can't be made for them. And good parents will instruct their kids in the knowledge and wisdom of the Lord. And 
and they will lead by example, but in the end, he or she, the child, must make the decision for himself or herself. So if you have a child or a relative or just any loved one in your life that has walked away from God, just know this, the final chapters have not been written. The story of Jacob proves it to be so. He moves from, well, that's my father's God, has all these crazy experiences in life, the highs, the lows, a lot of lows mostly. And as a result, he says, you know, I've come to realize that God is real, that he is there, and that he is with me. God is my God. So uh, this brings us to chapter 31. And, and at, at this point in his life, he's got everything he's ever wanted and more. He has a large family. He's extremely prosperous. He's got a lot of stuff, a lot of cattle, a lot of livestock. And, and, and he, but he has this, this issue. And, and, and the issue is he's, he's still living in close proximity to his father-in-law, Laban. And this relationship is, there's just a ton of drama. Laban, it's, it's like a real, it's, it's just, it's like toxic and dysfunctional. And he's beginning to realize that the longer I stay close to this guy, the, the worse it's going to be for me and for those around me. Now, because Jacob has a great deal of wealth and possessions, it's going to be difficult for him just to pack everything up and leave. So this is going to require some thinking, some planning. And so that's what he begins to do. Uh, Laban, the relationship with his father started out well enough. Then he finds out who his father-in-law really is. And over the course of time, you know, sometimes it can be that classic in-law relationship where it's just one struggle after another. And finally, Jacob decides, uh, well, it's time for us to part ways. Verse one, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban so that would be his brother-in-laws. They were saying, you know, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all of his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as he did before. So his brother-in-laws essentially say, you know, Jacob has become quite wealthy and he's been made wealthy because he's used our father. He's accumulated things off of the back of our father, and we don't like that. That's not right, but it needs to be made right. Now, this isn't entirely true because earlier we read that Laban had told Jacob, you know, you can, you can choose what you want amongst the flock. And so Jacob chooses all of the animals that are blemished, sort of the castaways, right? The ones that weren't really, weren't really worth anything. And he leaves the best of the flock to his father-in-law. So it's not really true what they're saying, but they're jealous. And they also want Jacob out of the picture. So Laban is in a bad mood. And during this time, God begins to speak to Jacob. Verse 3, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers. Go back to your kindred and I will be with you. So when Jacob hears these words, it's like affirmation of what he's been thinking, but he's also a bit terrified because remember, the reason why he left his homeland is because 
he deceived his brother Esau and his brother Esau was so angry, he wants him killed. And so he's like, I gotta get out of here because Esau was like a man of the field. He's used to killing, he's got blood on his hands and he'll follow through with what he says. So Jacob leaves, he's been gone for a long time, but now God says, you need to go back, go back to your homeland. So there's part of him that's like, great, I get to go home. But on the other side, it's like, wait a minute, I'm going back to meet my brother. This could be very bad for me and everything that I have my family. And that's why God says, I will be with you. Here's a lesson, one of the lessons we've been learning so far throughout the book. Whenever God tells us to do something, know that God is with us. And that's a really important thing for us to hear right now, especially in light of the culture and the times that we live in, because so often it's like when we read and we apply the truths of this book, God's word, it feels like we're that sole fish swimming upstream when all the other fish are just being carried along by the current. And that's really hard, you know, especially if you're younger because there's this overwhelming sense to want to be liked and to want to fit in. And, and yet sometimes when we're asked to do something, we will stand out. And the Bible says that you're not alone. The feeling of being alone will cause you to do all kinds of things that aren't good for you. Isn't it interesting? One of the first not, well, actually the first not good in all of creation, we read several chapters earlier, the first not good of all creation is when God looks at Adam and says what? This guy's alone. And that's not good. Why? Aloneness, loneliness will drive you to do things that are not in your best interest. And so God creates a helper fit suitable just for him. And so he brings to Adam Eve and she's the perfect complement to man in every way, physically, emotionally, spiritually. If you try to make a go at your Christian life alone, you won't make it. This is why you hear us saying so often, you have gotta get involved in Christian community. We're about to launch rooted groups. If you haven't been involved in a rooted group, please, as your pastor, what I'm asking you, get involved. This is the soil that we wanna provide that allows your spiritual roots to grow deeper. You say, well, that doesn't work for me. We've got groups in women's ministry, men's ministry, young adult, youth, every minute. We've got, we've got something for you. If you just take a little initiative, what you're going to find is something that's a blessing to you because here's how lives are transformed. You get the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God in your life, and you will never be the same. I, I'll just give you a little example from last night. I got together with some buddies, some friends. We have, we're all in a fantasy football league together, right? And so we make it kind of fun. At the beginning of the season, we get together at the commissioner's house. It's all very, very uh, formal. At the commissioner's house, and, and what, we, what we put on is an owner's combine, right? So the owners compete against each other in different events, ax throwing, cornhole, wall sit. That's why I'm having trouble standing right now because <laughs> my thighs are still burning a little bit. And then we compete against each other, right? And, and, and then that determines your rank order, which then determines your draft order, right? And that's super important. 
because there's consequences to losing fantasy football. And Tim can testify because he's been one, all right? Appreciate that humility. So it's all, it's all very, very simple, but it's so much. It's just fun getting together with these guys. You know, and I always leave thinking, sometimes we take for granted what we have within the Christian community. And then my next thought is, there are people in church that don't have this and they desperately need it and they don't even realize it. How sweet that is to have that kind of community where you're not alone. You don't feel lonely, but you feel connected. And so this is really powerful because God knows what Jacob is thinking. Yeah, but if I go back, I'm going to be on my own and I'm going to face this and I don't... God says, I'm with you. I've said it before many times. The man of God, the woman of God, doing the will of God is invincible until God calls him or her home. The man of God or the woman of God doing the will of God is invincible until God calls him or her home. So this is, this is beautiful. This is exactly what Jacob needs. Now, in order for Jacob to leave, he has to fulfill a Mesopotamian law. It was actually, a, it was actually written code that, that uh, a husband had to consult with his wife in order to remove her from her family's land. And so that's what, what he does. And um, he's explaining the situation. He's saying, uh, here's the deal. Um, Father-in-law is really upset. The mood has changed. Um, I'm not sure that there's anything left for us here, but more drama and pain. And we all know the history. He's double-crossed me. And, and he's having this conversation with his, his wives. Yes, wives, plural, because he has four at this point. We talked about this last week. You can go back if you missed it for review. Uh, nowhere in the Bible does God command a man to marry more than one Wife, And whenever you see polygamy take place, there's always lots of drama that follows. And Jacob is a man in process. He hasn't always been obedient to what God has called him to do. At this point, he's got these four wives. So he says, here's the situation. I think it's time to go. And more so, God has actually spoken to me and told me, time to go back to my homeland. And we actually get what... Uh, what the wise response is in verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. So remember previously, Jacob worked what was essentially 14 years worth of labor for Laban in order to marry this. It's about five times the normal dowry that would be paid to a father-in-law. And apparently Laban has lost it all. All the wealth, verse 16, that God has taken away from our father actually belongs to us and to our children. So in, in other words, they say, hey, God has a way of redistributing wealth when he wants to. And, and he's redistributed our dad's wealth to us. Now then, whatever God has said to you, go ahead and do. So Jacob develops an escape plan, which is going to be pretty complicated because he's got a lot of stuff and, and it's, it's like he's going to be noticed if he just 
begins to start packing up things and, and leaving. Verse 17, so Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property, all, everything that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padam Aram. What this tells you is this is this, this lot. This is, this is a huge amount to go to the land of Canaan, back to his father, Isaac. Now, at this point, something really sketchy happens. Jacob doesn't know this, but it's going to come back to haunt him. Verse 19, Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel, that's one of his wives, stole her father's household gods, right? So picture this. So as they're getting ready to leave, Laban's daughter, Jacob's wife, goes into her dad's house and, and steals some stuff. And part of what she steals are Laban's household gods and Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. I just want to note there's a fun little play on words here in the Hebrew text because the word for stole and the word for tricked, Rachel stole the gods and, and uh, Jacob tricked Laban. It's actually the exact same word in the Hebrew and it literally describes to steal the heart. So the text reads like this, Rachel stole the heart of her father by stealing his household gods. And Laban, or Jacob stole the heart of Laban by stealing his family away from, uh, from Laban. Now what's interesting is that this little Hebrew word for household gods is teraphim. And it describes these little carved figurines. So apparently this guy had a bunch of little idols on the shelf and Rachel pockets them as she leaves. As you'll see in a minute, this causes Laban to get mental. Kind of reminds me of my first job. I, I was uh, 16, 15, 16 years old and, and I was working at this, uh, this pool store. And because I'm colorblind, I had a really difficult time testing people's water because you had to match it, you know, on a little chart. You know, I'd be like, hmm, what do you think? You know, <laughs> that didn't go well, right? <laughs> and so I was assigned the task of delivering patio furniture, which was awesome because it got me out of the place. But every once in a while, the owner would go with me. And the owner was this guy who, uh, yeah, he, ha he was just, he was out of his mind behind the wheel of a car. <laughs> and being young, it terrified me. I'm riding shotgun, he's, we got everything loaded up. And he's like, all right, let's go. On the dashboard of his car, there was this, this little figure. And I could tell it, was, it looked like a saint or something, you know. And so I asked him one time, I'm like, What's the deal with this? Because every time he'd get in the car, he'd tap the head of that saint, and then he'd be like, make the sign of the cross. I'm like, what's the deal with that little, that little saint? He said, that's Saint Christopher. He's the patron saint protecting travelers. So he tapped the head of this little figure, make the sign of the cross, and then it was pedal to the metal. <laughs> It was insanity. And it was, it was as if, because I got this little St. Christopher thing going, we're good. We're good. Well, as you're about to see, that's exactly how Laban feels about his gods. 
he's so attached to their meaningless meaning in his own life that when he discovers they're gone, well, let's, um, let's just read about it. Uh, by the way, this is really smart on, uh, on Jacob's part, his plan, because the text says that he's going to plan his escape during sheep shearing season. So Laban has massive amounts of sheep. Quite frankly, he probably has hundreds of shepherds to care for them. So even with hundreds of shepherds during shearing season, it's going to take three, four, five, six, maybe even a week to take care of all of these sheep. Lots of activity, everybody's buzzing around, all the sheep are running around, and you, know, you got to gather them together. It's just a chaotic time. And Jacob says, that's the perfect time for us to pack up and leave. And that's exactly what he does. Well, uh, Laban discovers he's been tricked and his idols have been taken and he's not happy. So he goes after Jacob with murderous intent. But God intervenes and speaks to Laban in a dream. Verse 24, but God came to Laban, the air man. By the way, that's the second time now we've read that. Before the text, it would just say Laban, but now it will describe Laban as an air man. And that's important moving forward because as Jacob makes this departure, Jacob will become Israel. He'll become essentially the father of the Israelite nation, right? He is a Hebrew. The Israelites and the Arameans, there will be conflict down through the ages between those two people groups. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, God says, keep your mouth shut. Be very careful what you do, what you say to my guy Jacob. So Jacob's really nervous. Um, Laban finally catches up to him, and he's happy to hear only words and not violence. Verse 26, and Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs with tambourine and lyre? That's a joke because this guy's been abusing Jacob for the last 20 years. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my God? So Jacob says, well, let me ask, answer the first part of your question. As far as leaving, he says, I, I left because I was afraid. For I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. And as far as stealing your gods, verse 32, anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that's yours and you take it. And then we'll kill the person that has stolen from you. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Woo! Yet another little plot twist. So Laban makes it seem like he's the good guy in this thing, but he, he's really not. Um, this guy's super sketchy. Um, it's the part, though, about the stolen property that takes Jacob by surprise. So what Laban is about to do is go on a hunt to search for stuff. But Rachel's really, really, she's really crafty herself. She hides them in a very special place. Verse 34. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and then she sat on them. 
Laban felt all about the tent. He didn't find him. She said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched and searched and searched, but he did not find the household God. Woo! Laban has met his match in his daughter. He can't fathom the idea that his own daughter would desecrate his household gods by sitting on them when it is her time of the month. Can't even imagine that happening. This tells you a little something about what Rachel thinks of her father's gods. By the way, what good did those gods do her? <laughs> How did they ever help her dad become a good father? So Laban finds nothing. In response, you know, have you ever, those of you who would consider yourselves long-suffering, God bless you. Those of us with a shorter amount of patience, we need to learn from you. But I've realized that it seems like everybody in life has their breaking point. And a lot of times those who are long-suffering, I mean, sometimes they're just stuffers. They stuff stuff down and keep it down right? until finally it's just like, I can't do this anymore. What Jacob does next is about 20 years worth of anger and frustration pent up and now released. Verse 36, then Jacob became angry and he berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. Bring out all the stolen stuff that you're accusing me. These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. I've taken care of your stuff that you entrusted me and I've done a really good job for you. What was torn by wild beasts, I didn't even bring to you. I bore the loss of myself. I replaced them on my own so that you didn't even know so that you had nothing missing. I bore the loss of it myself from my hand. You required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by that heat, the day it was consumed and the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your daughters, six years for your flock. You've changed my wages 10 times. You've totally mistreated me year after year. And I put up with it. I even excelled. If the God of my father, notice the language, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, if that God had not been on my side, he's with me. Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands. And last night he met with you and he rebuked you. He says, no, Laban, 
I'm the one who's been afflicted in all this, not you. And because God saw my affliction and God told me he was on my side, he showed up in your dreams and he spoke to you on my behalf. Two things, Christian, if you have ever been wronged or mistreated, please know that God sees it. That's another theme throughout the book of Genesis. Going back to Genesis chapter 16, this woman named Hagar gets terribly mistreated and cast away. She gets used and abused, cast away. She's on her own. And the text says that God sees her, meets with her, and ministers to her. God is always above humanity. And God is always understanding what happens in the midst of your pain and your heartache. And the greatest proof of this is in the promise that was made to Jacob saying that from you one would come forth that would, would be a blessing to every family on earth and that is Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, essentially what God is saying is, I see the lostness of humanity and I see the trajectory of, of where each human naturally wants to go in life, living apart from me and essentially doing whatever we want to do. In a nutshell, that's really what the Bible describes as sin. It's not a word that you hear very often in our culture because in general, we don't like to think there's anything wrong with us. But one of the most easily verifiable truths of the scriptures is that men and women, they've got problems. They're dysfunctional. We make really bad decisions. We hurt ourselves. We hurt those around us. Sin is why the world is so jacked up. There's no question about it. God sees all that and he says, uh, I need to fix it. So because in our fallen state, there isn't anything we can do to earn our way to God, he sends Jesus to die on the cross to prove his love for us. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we're, we're sort of all in this, you know, in this collective boat where we're just at the foot of the cross and we're all exposed as sinners in need of a savior. God provides a way for our sins to be forgiven through the death of his son. That's the heart of what the scriptures refer to as the gospel or good news. Jacob has exposed Laban for who he really is. And, and, you know, sometimes in life you have to have really hard conversations with people, uh, especially if you're in leadership, right? Sometimes uh, if you are in a position where you're leading your family as a father, you have to make the hard decisions of telling people, hey, listen, love you, but I can't allow your dysfunction to come across my family's doorstep anymore. That's leadership. Jacob is now leading his family well because essentially what he's telling Laban is enough. No more. God is on my side. I will do what he asked me to do. And as for you and your corruption and your dysfunction and all the toxicity around you, it's over. Uh, this is a, a healthy break in an unhealthy relationship. 
How do you get there? Well, Jacob is a changed man. Why? It goes back to what I said earlier. He's a doer of the word, right? He listens to the word of God and obeys, not partially anymore, but fully. He's got the spirit of God now leading him, and he is now beginning to lead what will become the people of God, the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. God has given him all that he has, but God has given us so much more. Paul says this in Romans 8, through Jesus, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, all things. For those who are called according to God's purposes, and God's purposes are always good. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for a purpose of being conformed to the image of his son. You want to know what the ultimate good in life is? People read this verse like, oh, all things work for good. All things work for good. And you're like, what does that even mean? He tells you what it means. You know what the good is? The good is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Because when you are conformed to the image of, of Jesus Christ, that's where the greatest blessings in life occur. In order that he might be the firstborn, that's a title of rights and privileges of being placed in God's family, among many brothers and those whom he predestined, see, God's involved in every aspect of your salvation, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of this salvific work is within the sphere of God's doing. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? It's pretty good. It's like, what's the response? Here it is. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Part of that all things, by the way, includes eternal life. So here's how I want to end our time together. I'm just going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't know where you're at, you know, in the room. You've, you've, uh, God has you here for a purpose, I can tell you that. You're definitely not here by accident. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for many, many years, and, or maybe all this stuff is new to you and you're kind of scratching your head a little bit. That's okay. But here's the most important thing that you need to know is that God loves you. And as we read earlier, the Bible makes it clear the demonstration of that love is through the death of Jesus Christ. For those that have embraced the death of Jesus, they're forgiven. Their sins, all the junk that they've done, all that they've done to contribute to the wrongness of our world, the pain in their own lives and that of others, it's, it's, been, for, it's been erased. So that when God looks at you, he looks at you through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ. Nothing more important than that. The world is filled with distractions. If you were to cut through it all, this is the most important thing in your life. You say, well, well what's next? Well, if you don't know Jesus, you simply, you begin that relationship through prayer. Prayer is communicating with God and it's something as simple as God. I recognize that I'm separated from you. <laughs> I recognize that I'm a sinner and that I embrace what Jesus did for me on my behalf dying essentially in my place. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's how serious it is. We tend to take it very, very lightly, but the Bible just cuts it right. That's a really high price to pay, and Jesus paid it. If that's the expression of your heart, you just say those words to God, and at that moment, you are placed in the family of God. You've been transferred from death to life. And I want to encourage you, if you've made that decision, it's really important for you to talk to somebody. After the service, you can talk to me. You can talk to somebody that's on 
stage on the worship team to follow up with you. It will be the most important decision you ever make in your life. And here's why, because your eternal destination rides upon it. It's that important. And if I don't share it with you, what that communicates is I don't care enough about you. And I do care enough about you. And so do a lot of other people in this room. So Father, as we end our time together, I pray that as always, your spirit would move in just really profound way that you would be reaching people right where they're at. Lord, for those of us who need to be reminded that you are always with us. Sometimes we do feel like we're swimming upstream, but in the end of time, we know that you're the one that is actually directing our path. And it's always good. Even though at times we can't see it in the moment, it's always good. We pray this in the name of the one who makes it all possible and his name is Jesus Christ and God's people said, amen.